He may be your father, but he is not your own man. The attributes of God. Now, we've already seen that an attribute is not something that is a part of God. So this is critical. It is something that is true of God in his basic nature. When we say God is love, it doesn't mean over here a certain part of God is love, and a certain part is justice, a certain part is patience. What it means is each one of these things are something that is true of God in his very nature and character. Now, we've seen that God is uh, omnipotent, meaning he can do it. We've seen that God is omnipresent. He is here. We have seen that God is omniscient. He knows it. We have seen that God is immutable. He never changes. Now, the next attribute in the way God has revealed himself in the scriptures is that he is infinite. Let me use three words here. Even though technically each word is different, I think if I put the three together, it'll help to understand. He is infinite, eternal, limitless. The three really tie together when we look at the character of God. Now, in Psalm 90, the Word of God says, everlasting to everlasting. In Psalm 147, verse 5, it says, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. He is limitless, He's infinite, He is eternal. Now, how does this apply to us, knowing that God is so great? One, it turns me from my limitations to a God who knows no limitations. Now, I'm going to weigh in the third part of this series on the attributes of God, I want to take the last part and share a story with you that I trust you will never forget and will be used in your life to trust God in a greater way. But I'm going to hold that off for a little while. And that it causes us to turn from our limitations to a God that has none. Then, God is not only infinite, the Word of God says He is also justice. God is just. When the Bible talks about God being just, when it says in Romans 1.8, He will exercise His justice, and when it says in Romans 12.19, leave room for the wrath or the justice of God, what it means is this. Justice is the application of equity to a moral situation. Now think that through. Justice is the application of equity to a moral situation. In other words, morally, it's balancing the scales. That's what justice means. To balance the scales. Now, when God balances the scales morally, it's not some standard outside himself he looks at and then determines whether this is right or wrong. But rather, it's his very nature. It is his very character and nature that is the standard by which he judges. For example, why is lying wrong? Because God is truth. Why is killing wrong? Because God is life. Right or wrong is based upon the very person and character and nature of God. The standard is his character. It's not something outside of himself. In other words, God is totally fair and impartial in all of his dealings with men. And when sometimes I'll see God do something from someone else and I don't seem to be a benefit, often I'll say, well, that's unfair. But I've got to come back and realize, wait a minute. 
God knows more than I do. And he's always impartial in his dealings with men. And then, all that God does agrees with all that God is. And so when he deals with us morally, he's simply being himself. And this is why one of my prayers has been, God, I want my life in relationships with others to reflect your character, your nature, your attributes. As you are just with me, I want to be just with others. In Romans 12, 19, it says, Never take your own revenge. Oh, I know it's not true of any of you. But so often, I want to take my own revenge. I want to balance the scale. And I want to pick up the club and do my part. God says, don't. He says, leave the revenge to me. Leave room for my wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If I do the vengeance, it's usually wrong. Why? I don't have the knowledge that God has. I am biased, I am prejudiced, I don't see the whole story. And so when I act to balance the scale, so often it's unjust. But it says, leave room. Turn it over for God to deal with, and he will balance the scale. And I believe this is probably one of several reasons why, like in Matthew 7, 1, it says, judge not, lest you be judged. Now what it's saying in there is not that we shouldn't judge. What it's saying, judge not, meaning don't judge anyone according to your standard, your limited perspective. Because if you do, you're going to turn right around and be judged the same way. And I'll tell you this, I sure don't want to be judged the way I've judged others. And what it's saying is whenever you do judge, the only basis of judgment is not your own perspective or anything else. It's the very character and nature of God. And that's why we are to give Him room to exercise His justice where I personally want to take it upon myself. And then another aspect of God that is something that is true of God, the Bible says that God is truth. You might call it veracity. God is truth. He, is, he conforms to the Godhead. And His knowledge and His word conforms to reality. He is truth. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I have learned over the years, the truest thing is what God says. The truest thing is what God says. Now, how do you define truth? Truth to me is that which coincides with reality. For example, I make the statement, it is raining out. You could go outside and say, there's no water falling from the heavens or anything. That's a false statement. Why? The statement I made does not coincide with reality. Well, if there's any one thing that coincides reality is the Word of God. God is truth. He is all-knowing, and everything that He says coincides with reality. And this is why there's sometimes that scholars and others will say something, and the Word of God seems to contradict it. Oh, have I learned over the years, trust the Word of God. Except in a rare situation, I've come to understand why. That His Word was truth. Whatever He says, He must act according to truth. And this is why the Word of God says, God is not a man that he should lie. Numbers 23, verse 19. God can't lie. Why? He's truth. 
And that's why I can trust him in whatever he says. He cannot perform any reality inconsistent with his basic nature. Therefore, God cannot lie. And the word of God goes on and says, Not a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? If you and I could know all truth, whenever we have questioned something that God has done, trust me, if we were in, quote, his shoes, we would do the same thing. He knows truth in a way that we don't. And this is why I've had to tell myself the truest thing about life is what God says, not what my feelings tell me. Not some of the things I learned in university or anything else. The truth, if what I learned in university is true, it will coincide with the Word of God. And much of it does. And when it conflicts with it, oh, I've learned one thing. I can trust this a lot more than I can man. It is true. God is truth. We don't have to depend upon feelings or everything to know the truth. God has already revealed it. God is truth. Then... Another aspect of God, another perspective of who God is, something is true about God, it says that God is good. God is good. In Psalm 119, verse 68, talks about God exercising his goodness. Now let me show you how this affects me. When I see God's greatness, when I study that in the scriptures, and I see his holiness, I'll tell you, it engenders a little bit of fear in me. No, it engenders a lot of fear. In me. But then when I see his goodness, it's like I'm fearful here, but a hand stretches out and says, be at ease. I love you. It's like when I study the nature of God, it's almost like to fear, but not be afraid. Does that make sense? To fear and yet not be afraid. And that's what happens, how goodness of God balances some of the other things that are true of God. Now, there are two manifestations of his goodness. One is in mercy, which is an active compassionate towards people. Being actively compassionate towards human suffering in his mercy. Then, in his grace, compassion towards our guilt and our human demerit. Where it says, in the word of God, bestows benefits upon the undeserving. It's manifested in his mercy and his grace, that very truth that God is goodness. How does this apply to us? And just in our daily life, the way we walk with Christ? One, it becomes a pattern for me. There's probably no area that I've seen of God where I've cried out more, God, I want this to be true in my life. I want to be a person who exercises goodness, who exercises mercy, and grace. And so often I do the other thing. But I believe when we see that God is goodness, it becomes a pattern for us to follow. And then if there's anything that has provoked praise on my part to God, it's when I came to understand that God is good. And it just caused my heart to just praise him uh, for it. And boy, in the book of Galatians, Paul wrote, said, do not grow weary in doing good. You know, so often you want to, because you do something that's not appreciated, anything else, and pretty soon you just want to say, well, I don't care, and give up. The thing that keeps me going, one of the things, is realizing God has never given up. No matter how we respond, he keeps exercising his goodness. And sometimes I just want to take and choke somebody. I'm reminded, 
mercy and grace. God is good. Then one aspect of God, an attribute, now not a part of God, something true of God, that most people talk about is God is love. God has revealed himself as a God of love. 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, God is love, God is love, God is love. Not simply does God love, but here's the key. God is love. And when God loves, he's simply being himself. That's what it took me for a while to understand. He is just simply being himself. Normally, when I've been in a position where I felt little love for God, it's because I haven't understood how much he loves me. And the more I understand how much he loves me, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's almost parallel. The more I come to love him. That's been my response. So many people think that I came to Christ intellectually because of the books that I've written and, and my own testimony. Uh, I set out to write my first book, The New Evidence that Demands a Verdict, against Christianity to refute it. I thought most Christians had two brains. One was lost and the other was out looking for it. I truly believed that Christians were walking idiots. And so I set out to write the book against Christianity and I ended up coming to Christ. So most people think it was the evidence. It was the intellectual route that I came to Christ. You know, it might appear to be that, but that's not the true reason. What truly brought me to Christ was not the evidence. All the evidence that I've documented in my books by thousands of documentations is now what brought me to Christ. All the evidence for the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the reliability of the Bible, all that evidence was simply God getting my attention. That's all it was. We say in America, God put his foot in the doorway, stopped the door from going all the way closed. What truly brought me to Christ was God's love. From Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. With tender kindness, I have drawn you. Once I became convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, intellectually, as a non-believer, that it was true, that I have what was written down 2,000 years ago, and what was written down was true, then and only then did I ever consider its message. But once I became convinced this Bible is historically accurate and reliable, then I started to consider its message. That's what brought me to Christ, was the love of God. And it, narrow it down to this. When I realized as a non-Christian that if I were the only person alive, Jesus still would have died for me, is what brought me to Christ. It humbled me, and I thank God to this day that phrase still affects me. To this day I realize God loves me so much that there still would have been a Christmas and an Easter. He still would have been born. He would have died through his son and would have been raised again the third day if there was no one else alive but me. And, oh, this was really brought home to me when a young lady at a university said, well, Josh, if that is true, then I would have had to pound the spikes into his hands to crucify him. Ooh. As many young people say, that's heavy. That is what brought me to Christ, his love. Now, first of all, Christ's love is uninfluenced. You say, what do you mean by that? There's not, nothing in our lives that triggered God's love for us. It was initiated on his behalf. He loved the unlovely. He loved the ungodly. 
while I was still a sinner, he loved me. Sometimes I wish that weren't true because there were some people that I don't love. I just simply wanted to despise them and I couldn't because Christ is my model. And when I was in that position, he still loved me. And, oh, there's some people that I just wish I didn't have to love, but I do. Except God said you don't have to like everyone, but you have to love them. And there's a lot of people I don't like, but I don't know one person alive that I don't love in Jesus Christ. Then God's love is eternal. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, as I said before, is I've loved you with an everlasting love. By tender kindness, I have drawn you. That's what brought me to Christ, his everlasting love. And then his love is omnipotent. In other words, he can do it. His love is all-powerful. There's no barrier greater than the love of God that can be broken down. Then God's love is infinite. In other words, it's inexhaustible. You cannot exhaust God's love. And sometimes the way I've acted, I've sure tried to. But you can't exhaust God's love. And then God's love is immutable. In John 13, verse 1, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end. It's immutable. And then God's love is holy. God's love never conflicts with his holiness. A lot of people will say, well, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? First of all, God doesn't send anyone to hell. If we go to hell, it's by our own choice. But when somebody says to me, how can a loving God allow anyone to go to hell? I'll turn around and say, well, how can a holy, just, righteous God allow sin into his presence? You see, God cannot express any one of his attributes at the preclusion of another. He cannot exercise his justice without exercising his love. He cannot exercise his love without exercising his justice. That's the uniqueness of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. His very nature of justice demanded the wages of sin is death. His very love demanded, I love you. I want to draw you to myself. And so what he did, he went to the cross, took our sin upon himself, and when Jesus said, in his finish, the holy, just, righteous nature of God was expressed upon his son, so it wasn't overlooked. And then in his love, he brought us to himself. That is the uniqueness of the story of Christianity. What we could not do for ourselves, God did for us through his son, Jesus Christ. He exercised his justice, he exercised his holiness, he exercised his love, his righteousness, everything, and it was all satisfied in the cross. He didn't say, well, I'll overlook my justice and just love you. No. The justice took his son to the cross, love took him out of the grave. Wow, that's quite a story. Then God is patient, the Bible says. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Oh, boy, am I fast to anger. I'm one of the most impatient people. I will stand at a microwave and say, hurry up. I'm a very impatient person. And yet it says, God is compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. God's patience causes him to sustain great hurt without immediately avenging himself. That's a lesson I need even more in my own life, is to be patient, to be forbearing, long-suffering, and not try. I want to bring the hammer down right away. And God says, back off. I mean, Romans 15, verse 5 says, the God of patience, 
Colossians 3 verse 12 says, the long-suffering God. And probably the biggest thing that knowing that God is patient does for me is that I need to be patient. Then it says God is faithful. Wow. That's not a part of God. It's something true of God in every area. In Psalm 119, verse 90, it says, Thy faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, He is God, the faithful God. He never forgets, He never falters, and He never fails. In Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, it says, Great is thy faithfulness. That'd make a great title for a song. And I think somebody stole that years ago. Great is thy faithfulness. Knowing that God is faithful, it really helps me to not be captivated by worry. But knowing that He will do what He has said, He will cause it to happen, whatever He has promised, then it causes me to be less involved in worrying about a situation. I often say, I never worry because that's a sin. I'm just deeply concerned. <laughs> we try to explain it away. But knowing that God is faithful, it causes me to trust Him even more. And then knowing that God is faithful, it keeps me from those spurts of criticism or murmuring or being uneasy about God. Give it time. He will cause it to happen if He has promised it. And then I truly believe, knowing that God is faithful, it's increased my confidence in Him in so many ways. We've covered a lot of things that are true about God. Now an attribute is not a part of God. It is something that is true of God in His basic nature. Now somebody says, well, is there anything that God can't do? Yes. There's many things God can't do. What? Yeah. Here's the phrase. God cannot perform any reality inconsistent with His basic nature. You say, what? That's right. God cannot perform any reality inconsistent with his basic nature. In other words, he cannot act unlovingly. He cannot act unjustly. Whenever he expresses one thing that is true about him, he must express the other. He can't say, well, I'm going to be angry over here and set aside my love. His anger almost must always be expressed in the context of his love because that's what's true of him. He cannot exercise his justice to the preclusion of his love. Or he can't exercise his love to the preclusion of his holiness. That's why there had to be the cross. Where every single attribute of God was met at the cross. And that set a holy God free to accept a sinful individual into his presence. And the cross of Christ is the only thing that has ever explained how a holy, just, righteous, loving God can do that. Yes, there's many things God cannot do. He cannot perform any reality inconsistent with his basic nature. But the more I see who God is, those that know their God should do great exploits. And I truly believe the greater knowledge, true knowledge of God that we have, the greater he will be glorified through each one of our lives.